KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Mano. This is the Henry George Program. Show all about housing, production, and egalitarianism. Today in the program, we have on Paul Williams. You know, may know Paul Williams from Twitter on all sorts of uh, good takes on leftism, housing, and all sorts of other issues. He also shares these views on different outlets, his Substack, and also articles. We're talking about one article here, Public Housing for All. We're talking about the administrative capacity, public housing, social REITs, and more. Without further ado, uh, yeah, let's uh, just get into it. So, uh, yeah, th- thanks so much for coming on, uh, Paul. Yeah, hey, Mark. How's it going? Good to be oh, here. It's going, it's going great. Uh, so the new article, uh, Public Housing for All, uh, it is on Noema. Uh, it is about public housing. Public housing, everybody's chatting about it. Uh, but I, I feel like this article... It isn't like every other article. It has, you know, I think different focuses. Uh, but, you know, I'll just let you speak for yourself. You know, why did you write this article? And just in short, what is the kind of main points you want to make with this with this article, Public Housing for All? Uh, yeah, uh, thanks. Good question. Yeah, I think there is, I think there has been so much talk about public housing and social housing and how we move away from, you know, the kind of current sets of subsidies that we have in this country to, to provide housing that by all measures are, you know, have um, inefficiencies, problems, uh, slowness, lag, inability to meet the massive need at the moment. Um, and how do we kind of turn the corner on that? And, and I think that there is kind of a vacuum in the space of what can the state specifically do and how do we do it? To provide to turn the corner and provide housing in a new way that is universal and and houses the many, you know I think that a lot of times, kind of these these ideas of social housing, you know, there's some left punching with them where you know people will say, oh, this is so infeasible, you don't know what you mean, you don't know what you want, and you know to be sure there are plenty of you know there are people who say they want things and 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 aren't sure you know how it ought to be done or, or, you know, what the state can really do in a, you know, immediately actionable way to, to make that. It's excusable. People are angry and that's, that's fair if you're angry with right. articulating a new plan totally. for the world. Right. Not everyone knows <laughs> what the process is for issuing municipal bonds and, and, you know, uh, putting together a housing deal. Like it's not, yeah. it's not simple stuff, but I think that I, I think that the people who, who want social housing, uh, are right in their visioning, you know, which is that that an excellent way for, you know, to kind of socialize land rents, if you will, which I know is, you know, kind of the uh, on the Georgist agenda. Sure. Um, is to socialize the ownership of of real estate. You know, that's one way to to begin to accomplish that task. Yeah. So that was, you know, I guess that was part of my intent. And, and, and also, you know, I've just been uh, disjointedly trying to put my thoughts together about how a program like this could work maybe over the past year. And this was a good opportunity to uh, lay it all out there in a little bit longer form uh, and make my case. So, yeah, I think that's a good you know plug for the fact that not only is this article out in Noema, but you've had a sub stack for the last, you know, since last January uh, and have been posting, you know, kind of uh, short articles, mostly crunching data in most of them about, Everything from light tech to uh, you know the eviction uh, cliff and and all sorts of other issues, but uh, yeah, I think what I really liked about the Noema article is, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons people could talk about it from like a very like lofty theoretical point to like decommodification, blah blah blah. You know, I mean, I think the stuff that really caught my ear is at the end of it, you talk about you know the importance of pushing the work to the edge of the bureaucratic apparatus. Which to me is like okay, now we're now we're talking. This isn't just like lofty stuff. This is the actual like talking about the machines that work in the world that actually build stuff to achieve ends. Uh, and you know, I, I think uh, I I really love when you know people are talking about this space. So I, I guess talk more about what you mean by by saying that. Sure. Yeah. So you know, I I think that part of that is in reference to. Um, some of the models for socialized real estate ownership that happen across the world uh, and across the United States even too. You know, so I, I talk about uh, a couple of these models specifically in the article. One, you know, that operates in the United States today is the, you know, Alaska Permanent Fund, which, um, you know, is, is, an, 
is a you know publicly owned entity that does own real estate, uh, and among that housing, um, you know it's it is not a vehicle that you know is you know the housing of the many is not its project, um, but it does have socialized real estate ownership, and and the way that they are you know what it seems like really gives them the opportunity to be a player in the real estate market is is the fact that the Alaska Permanent Fund, uh, the day-to-day operator, right? So there's all this money that was put into this fund. It's not the state of Alaska, you know, state government office that is like managing the investments and like going into real estate deals. They created their own state-owned company, the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation, which is the board or, and, and the director are, you know, appointed by, by the government but they operate independently, right? And they, uh, you know, have a charter and they're, they are to have the, the fund and the people of Alaska's interests at hand and they just go out and, you know, more or less act like a company, right? Yeah. Get the best deal, get good housing, get good returns so that you can pay these big dividends to all the people of Alaska every year and help fund the state government's operations. So they're not bogged down by um, all of the same hurdles that kind of get in the way of very uh, of the much more entrenched um, agencies or the agencies that are much more entrenched in the bureaucracy, like your state housing finance agency or um, something like that. Yeah, when everything's a big ball of mud, it's a lot of inaction. Like it's you talk about, you know, kind of our current systems of you know public housing finance are depending upon the federal government to cut off, you know, checks for maintenance. And, uh, you know, what happens? You get like a you know, bad leadership or whatever, and then suddenly you run dry. And, you know, that's no way to run. <laughs> it's very hard to run anything when you have so many stuff, which is really out of the hands and really kind of at the mercy of one big institution, as opposed to, you know, like a nimble organization, which is, you know, s- you know semi-autonomous and running and chugging, that's a real machine you can depend right. on and actually can achieve results. Right. And, that, and, and to, you know, to that point that, you know, there, there are entities like this across the world that, that um, similar to the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation, where it's, you know, this kind of independent entity that is a, a state owned and state sponsored enterprise. HECA, which is the uh, social housing agency owned by the city of Helsinki in Finland, very much the same kind of deal, right? The, the city itself created and sponsors this municipal corporation, appoints the board, gives it a mandate. This is your, we give you some funding. This is what you are supposed to do with it. But they operate independently and and do their own thing. Their project very much is to house the many. Uh, In fact, the largest landlord in the entire country of Finland is HECA, the social housing company owned by Helsinki. I believe it's like one out of every six residents is in a HECA yeah, I think it's something close to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, like 16, 17%. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Uh, it, yeah, and I, I think, like, you talk about, you know, just in general, like, it's about for the many, like, achieving a goal is really defining what you want, you know, locating resources, dividing schemes, and, and doing it. Compare that to, you know, maybe what works with, you know, light tech or something. You know, light tech is, you know, ostensibly a program which is supposed to solve the problem of housing failures for people of low income. But, you know, how does it run is really not so much outcome oriented as much as kind of a procedural scheme of trading benefits between corporations affected by the corporate tax rate. And and like in the end, like one, are we doing what we need based upon the actual perceived you know need of housing at what rate? And like, are we fighting ourselves insofar as like people are saying, oh, well, you know. Like it's like the corporate tax rate should not be the central pillar of what, you know, we do for, you know, creating housing. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Mark Shelburne, if he were listening, would would quibble with the idea that the corporate tax rate is the uh, you know central pillar. But but, I'm I'm sure I'm sure he'll he'll name search for light tech in every podcast and I'll get an angry uh, podcast reply. I I have talked I have talked to Mark about you know, my, my municipal housing idea before. And, and he's uh, Mark Shelburne, not you. Sure. He's not opposed. He's not opposed. He's, I think that the, there are ways to take a lot of the tools that exist today, which, you know, is kind of what I mean by uh, identifying resources, repositioning them 
to do slightly to do different things and to reframe you know the entire apparatus of how we're actually doing this work and so like to give a concrete example of that you know there there are there are mixed income projects that get built with flytech all the time and they use um, often, you know, uh, 4% LIHTX mixed with tax exempt bonds. Um, and, you know, when you use 4% LIHTX, getting a little bit into the weeds here, but it, there, there's two, I'll jump back a little bit. There's two types of yeah, LIHTX. Go, go deep in the weeds. I love okay. it. So there's 9% LIHTX, which are, uh, the percent refers to, um, basically is a reference to how much the tax credit ends up being worth at the end of the day, how much you can sell it to an investor for. Um, and so the 9% credits um, get you more money. The 4% credits get you less money. Typically, the 9% are used for, you know, new construction projects for like 100% affordable housing and things like this. Typically, the 4% and there's some variation state to state on, you know, how they actually do it. But typically, the 4% are for, you know, acquisition, rehab, buying an old building and adapting it or doing some new construction. But, you know, say only... Third, or say only 50% of the units are going to be affordable and the other 50% are going to be market rate. So this is a big system of kind of just creating up different tranches of risk in order to try to pipe yeah. capital investment to where we want to based upon the actual risk profiles. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so, but, you know, to give a concrete example of what I'm talking about, you know, kind of repurposing some of the existing tools is states all the time are doing these mixed income 4% taxes and bond deals. You know, so you'll get somebody building a uh, new LIHTC building. Half the units are for people at, you know, 30 to 60% AMI and half the units are just market rate. The issue is often the folks who are doing these types of deals are for-profit developers who are building LIHTCs. So the CDCs, Community Development Corporations, almost always are sticking to 100% affordable new build stuff hmm. um, because that's, you know, kind of their, their you know, they are... Their mission, right, is to serve exclusively low-income people. Sure. Um, but these for-profit developers, it, if you if you have a project that is, you know, some portion of it is lower-income people and some portion of it is is market rate. Overall, just with that alone, you're either coming out, you're either breaking even or coming close to breaking even. On top of that, you're also getting the subsidy, right? So there is a surplus in there. And that is the thing that, you know, what we want to do, I think, is, is look at these places where these surpluses exist and say, we can create an entity that doesn't care about searching for these surpluses and instead repurposes anything that would be surplus as subsidy back into the projects, right? So if you're using those, if you're using these taxes and bonds and these LIHTECs, you know, we don't need to have that surplus on top. So in this sense, it's a surplus over what? Could you, could you get into that just a bit more in, in this context? Basically, the idea is, you know, the idea with, with mixed income projects is that you can have a split of your project. Some people are low income, some people are moderate income, some people are paying market rate. Yeah. And you can design your split such that you break even. Sure. And you're able to pay back your bonds. What we have now is we we give four percent tax exempt bonds um, to for profit developers who are building projects that are already either breaking even or coming very close. Sure. Right. We don't need to be giving them to projects that are already going to break even. If we built those projects on, if if a city, a public entity built those projects on its own, it could use a lower amount of those tax exempt bonds, those 4% tax credits, uh, and spread it across more projects and break even across the whole portfolio. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying now. So yeah, in general, I mean, this, this goes back to like your bigger point of kind of like, where does the money come from? And really, there's only essentially two different points, which is, you know, rent from the overall, you know, end user, and some sort of external subsidy. Right. And I, I think we're very used to, you know, subsidies are, uh, you know, actual line in the item and then a check comes and someone cashes the check and they use it. But there are other ways to do subsidies that are very effective. And one of that being, uh, I think a very subtle and very powerful one is, yeah, exactly advantaging different, you know, uh, loaning capacity or bonding capacity or, you know, managing yeah. risk in ways, which is really essentially uh, 
kind of a backdoor razzle dazzle to create money for people by advantaging them. And then, yeah, if you're right. if you're giving them money through privileges that don't need it, you know, it's clearly we're allocating the risk, you know, and, and the subsidies in a way that we could be doing it more effectively. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think more and more people are talking about just kind of cross subsidy as as a thing because when you have cross subsidy in a project, you are you know you can leverage a lot more of explicitly kind of you know subsidies within the project. You don't depend on external uh, things, and you can create a lot of self sufficient. If you if you have private firms are running these kind of cross subsidies already and are making you know making money uh, and and being self sufficient. Uh, imagine you can have higher cross subsidization with, you know, a public agency that is remains not really dependent on these external figures. One, I mean, I think this is, you know, extraordinarily powerful. There's a lot of, I think, resistance in maybe some circles who focus on, uh, I guess, the perceived narrative that because, you know, affordable housing is so important, we need to raise percentages uh, and I, I don't know, it's like, I, I don't know if like, this is a kind of group of people that aren't really worth engaging with because it's a very, there's, there's, it's not a whole lot of meat to the argument of like percentages are king, but I mean, just in general, like, uh, this kind of starts with the PPP, uh, Saoirse Gowan and, uh, Ryan Cooper, uh, paper from a few years ago, but yeah, they're, they're, they're very hot, <laughs> but, uh, and you, you, do you see this as getting kind of, I guess, political, uh, buy-in as well as this goes on? Yeah, I think that I think that mixed income. I, th- I think that there's good ways to talk about mixed income that I think can be popular if as we move this ball forward, right? And I and I think uh, one of the, one of the ones that I talk about briefly in in the article is is the fact that something that our existing programs are not good at is economic integration. Sure, and that is one of the biggest failures of the type of planning that was done around some of our housing projects um, in the 60s, 70s, 80s is, is there. And it wasn't just the public housing projects fault. You know, it was also, you know, city planning processes that responded to race and planning questions in general. But, you know, we wound up with a lot of economic and racial segregation, in particular in subsidized housing, a lot of concentration of poverty. And when you do mixed income projects, you are very explicitly and very concretely pushing back against that. Yeah. And I think that that is, there are a lot of people who I think are responsive to, to the need to do things like that, to make our cities less segregated economically and racially. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's just generally a a powerful argument, right? Like we know that the outcomes of the kind of segregation are, are bad. Yeah. Here's something we can do to push back on it. And that reminds me of just kind of in your data kind of centric, you know, posts about, you know, things like rent burden. I think a few things that are like kind of come up and important to note is it's very easy to look at overall kind of numbers. And I think this is a way that I think, you know, it's very easy, especially like federal budgets. You look at like kind of housing need, where are subsidies, how many things are being built, but you really drill down to it. You know, how does housing operate? It is very it's geographically disparate it's spatially disparate within metro areas and then within uh different levels of people in different you know kind of uh you know income you know tranches or like even if they're working or non-working or you know disabled mothers you know just all sorts of different stuff it's very easy to simplify the picture of housing and make a very nice little okay we we create a target of a number we achieve it in a way which seems optimal and easy uh but i the more you look the more complicated it is and i I don't i don't think that really reveals easy answers but i think it's definitely the way we need to approach it so i want you to talk a little more about kind of the data kind of uh drill down in in your rent burden to start sure yeah so yeah the 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 cost burden thing is very interesting one. And, and it's something that something I talk about just briefly back, back to the, you know, Noema article is, is that there are needs for solutions of all types to solve this problem, right? Like there comes a point, there is no amount of supply that will make housing affordable to someone with no income. Like that's never going to happen. We need income supports and a strong welfare state to help people 
with no income and very low incomes. But, you know, we also need to build a massive amount of housing, right? Like there are, there are need, their needs are like crisscrossing all over and they have to do with like, right, jobs, where are jobs located, where are jobs being added, how many people live there, how many people want to work, you know, all these different things. Um, but specifically on, on the cost burden question, um, I think something that gets, you know, overlooked is, you know, the big cost burden numbers are um, these two HUD definitions, which are if you pay between 30 and 50% of all of your income to rent or mortgage, you are called cost burdened. And if you pay more anywhere more than 50%, you are severely cost burdened. And so, yeah. and so, you know, there are a lot of people in that over 50% bucket. Um, you know, obviously almost all of them are, you know, very far down on the income ladder, but there is a significant, a huge amount of households in this country who are paying more than 80% of their income to rent. Yeah. And presumably a lot of these people are also, you know, receiving some forms of assistance like SNAP or Medicaid, one would hope, but, you know, I mean, that's, that's just completely untenable for uh, a, a family to have any level of economic opportunity if if that's the situation they're in. Yeah, and I, um, I think like, it speaks to like just like how invisible they are in the discourse as well. It's because I think you talk about, I think everyone wants to say like, oh, light tech is working to get people over this, you know, hump of, you know, whatever, you know, section eight and so on, or I mean, the earned income tax credit being a big thing of like just trying to get people over different thresholds as opposed to like, yeah, there are people in clearly severe ruts that I think a more dignified welfare state actually has on ramps to solving. And yeah. I think it, it clearly looks at like we just put on, you know, spectacles that make them invisible. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I, and I think that the, you know, in particular, the, the kind of welfare state and this, you know, obviously the, not I mean an elephant in the room, but like the thing that we have that can help people pay rent is the housing choice voucher. And there are a lot of problems with <laughs> the housing choice voucher. Um, you know, the main one being that, uh, you know, there is a set of people who are eligible for it under the current rules. Um, and there is only enough funding in the program such that one fifth of all of those households um, can actually get it. And everyone else is just in this long, long line that depending on where you live, you can be in line for a decade or more. Yeah. I've heard of people like, you know, the house, like you know, previously Section 8, you know, House Joyce Voucher, like in Indianapolis, they got on pretty damn easy. But like out in the, right. you know. But no, was, you, drive, you drive two hours uh, north to Chicago and you can wait in line for a decade. Yeah. You know? and, and I mean, but that, you know, that also points to, you know, kind of this other question of like, right, like the, the housing shortage is, the sh housing shortage in, Indi in Indiana is, Nothing like the housing shortage in New York or California or, you know, Chicago even. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have these very different conditions everywhere. But yeah. And, and then, you know, the other question, the other issue with housing choice voucher is is the fact that, you know, it's structured as a voucher, which is, uh, you know, a policy choice that was made. Um, in the neoliberal context. Right. In order to kind of. A partnership, a partnership with landlords and not, you know, maybe to, sub, you know, to try and prevent any fraud and to not subject landlords to having to take these poor transient people or something like this, right? Like a, yeah. And also well, with the I assumption have, that state capacity is never going to come online. So we make our way with kind of this, you know, this free lunch as it were. Right. There is, there is a question with, with housing choice vouchers of like, okay, look, if, you know, we also have these problems where, where um, people get housing choice vouchers, but then cannot find a landlord who will accept the voucher. And the way the voucher works is like, you get a voucher and then you go apply for apartments like you would apply for any other apartment. But instead of saying, I have this much money to give you, you say, I have a little bit of money to give you because I don't have very much income, but I also have this piece of paper that you can fill out and then submit to the local public housing authority. And then they will submit it to HUD and then HUD will cut you a check every couple of months to pay part of my rent. Yeah. And that's just like, you know, it, one, it's extremely complicated Two, there's a lot of landlords who just don't want to participate. And there are laws to try and force them into participating. 
Um, but even in the places where there's laws to make that happen, they still don't do it. And you have, you know, you hear it's very common for people to get a housing interest voucher, not find anywhere, and then they give up the voucher because you have a time period from when you receive it to when you have to have found a place before you have to relinquish it and go back to line. Yeah, this speaks to the, uh, you know, kind of the segregation that is created. You know, I, I think there's like big dis- disparities uh, between, you know, kind of acceptance of these these vouchers. You can look at disparities in terms of who gets evicted. And yeah, when, when, when places are tight, it's like you can very easily say, hey, no, thanks. That sounds like a like it sounds like a pain, <laughs> you know, right. like it, it's it's why would you take extra frictions if you don't have to? Uh, especially if like maybe the the payouts are not even reflecting how rents are rising in the, in the area. And where do you actually see this work as an actual machine is places where everything is so, so slack, like land values are cheap, stuff is like worthless. But then if you actually get a nominally effective, you know, voucher payout above what it really should rent for, you get people who just farm it. It's like Bitcoin farms, you know? It's just like, it's. I mean, the the system works to kind of optimize, but we're optimizing in really counterproductive ways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's also, you know, in, it, at, at some point you have, you know, if we fully funded the housing choice voucher tomorrow, you know, a lot of the places where people need vouchers, where people meet, meet the eligibility requirements for the voucher and are in line for one, there are not enough, it's very unlikely that there would be enough landlords on the market to absorb all of those new vouchers. Yeah. Right. Like there are, you know, we, we're, we have a fifth of, of, of people who are eligible currently are able to get it. And even that number has problems getting into units sometimes, right? If we gave everyone a voucher, like we think that they would all immediately be absorbed. Like there is a question of like, should we actually just give people money? Um, and, and I on think- top of that too, like you take a step back, like it's giving like there is the money economy and the real economy, and you know like a competent administration of the two binds them in ways that work. But you know when you only deal with the money economy, either through voucherization or even if it's just you know strict payouts, you still need to work on the real economy end to make sure it has like outcomes that are going to work with the money economy. Yeah. Yeah, that's the big, that's the big, that's a million dollar question. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and I, I think that goes to, uh, to, uh, you know, talking about, you know, financing and so on. I mean, we're getting into a world in which the money economy is becoming far more flexible. What we've done at the federal level, it's doing things we thought impossible of kind of vigorous, you know, deficit spending, money creation, direct payouts to people at gigantic scales which is really, you know, exciting, but I think you can also look at the fact when you're dealing with this vastly disparate, you know, impact, is this going to create the real economy outcomes you want, such as creating new housing stock, etc. And one thing you talk about here is instead of maybe kind of large scale, you know, just pump the money out, hope it all works, uh, more, I guess, direct administrative actions such as municipal lending programs from the federal level on down uh, could be really powerful. Yeah, I think this is one that it does make sense to look at. It does make sense to look at how agencies around the world that that are able to have you know successful and effective programs, how they actually finance the construction of, of buildings, because that's, you know, um, obviously, you have you have operating costs when you have your building built, and you have debt to pay, debt to pay back and everything. But like initially, you need a loan, <laughs> and that loan is going to have an interest rate. And how do you get a good loan with a good interest rate? And so the way it works in um, Finland is, you know, the social housing company just goes and takes out a loan from a regular bank, which is like you know one way to do it. That's fine. But and but what happens is the national government then just commits to pay the interest, whatever the interest rate is on, on that loan. So you basically, you know, if you're the social housing developer, you just have an interest-free loan, which, yeah, is, totally, which is totally feasible, uh, especially when you also have, um, you know, big welfare state allowing your tenants to pay, to pay like moderate rents, right? To allow you to pay back your debt. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, doing something like that, here, I mean, you know, an, an interest subsidy program, you know, is, would maybe be one way to do it. 
but something that we, you know, kind of have at the federal level, you know, that was kind of attempted during the pandemic was this municipal liquidity facility where basically the Fed just kind of like dumped some like grease on the municipal bond market. Um, and the way they did that was by basically backstopping the entire market by saying, look, we're going to take a look at everyone's every municipal bond issuer's credit rating. We're going to uh, tack on a half a percentage point uh, penalty rate and we will buy it. We'll buy any bond. Yeah. And what that and the signal that that sent to the market was like, you know, in a pandemic like we saw at, you know early last year, a lot of uh, bond buyers might just want to like drive up the interest rate and be like, oh yeah, you're not going to be able to pay back this debt. There's a pandemic, like big interest rate or do what happened in 1970s in New York, which was just flat out refused to buy bonds. But with the Fed saying like, look, I'll buy them. If they're not going to buy them, sends the message to the market. Like, nope, like you better buy it. Like it's not, you know, you're not going to gain anything by not buying it. And that kind of like greasing of the wheel to keep that bond market good allowed states to you know keep issuing bonds and and kept the municipal bond market healthy and i think that there you know there are some maybe more aggressive things that congress could ask the fed to do in that space effectively you know what finland does is they drive the interest rate down to zero now i don't think that you know congress is going to tell the fed to like <laughs> buy municipal bonds at 0% interest uh, i don't think that's happening tomorrow but like you know there are things that the fed could do to try and drive the interest rate lower to, to yeah. help municipalities finance things from housing to climate adaptation and all these different things. I mean, we already do. I mean, it's really about what you vision, what you achieve. I mean, we do things to uh, facilitate home ownership and so on. You know, we are willing to play with all these powers of, of, of credit. Uh, but I think it's important that, you know, I think with home ownership, a lot of times it's kind of treated as a procedural thing. You just execute because this is how we do things here as opposed to, no, the, the, the name of the game is always what are the outcomes we want to achieve here. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I think this is kind of just a long term. It's very easy, I think, to, you know, put yourself down in time and place and look at the entire landscape of institutions as normative, almost eternal and natural. And then every change is kind of like some major, you know, achievement or undertaking as opposed to like, I think the other view, which is there is a long term evolution of modern state capacity as far as building institutions to allow things to exist. I mean, if you put yourself back in a pre-New Deal world, it was a very different world of how business run. It was much like there were heart attacks every every, every you know, couple uh, you know years. I mean, before that, I mean, before 1910 or whatever, like even more, you know, crazy, oh. the hard money. And I think moving to the point, I think it honestly, I, I think we'll look forward to the future of the fact that we have sound money, you know, metro municipal level governments is going to seem archaic because that's a terrible way to run the major lifeblood of a civilization. Right. You shouldn't have your you shouldn't have your cities be going bankrupt because uh, counter cyclical actions. Yeah, no, the, the yeah, municipal banking and state banking is going to we need to we need to get on that. That's a. Another big one. I was tweeting about that today. I, there was, I saw some, uh, I used to, I used to work for the city of Chicago. Um, and I saw, you know, there, there's all, there's been this question for a long time about like, you know, the city of Chicago banks, all of its deposits at like, I don't even remember who, you know, city bank or whatever. You're one of the big guys. And, and, um, and is always kind of like, you know, complaining like, Oh, Citibank doesn't like, do lending um, to like these neighborhoods that we want them to lend to. And Citibank's always like, ah, we're trying. And then, you know, people are saying like, demand that they do better. And it's like, look, like this is like such nonsense. Like, do we think that if we like withhold our deposits, you know, which amount to like 0.0001% of all of Citibank's assets, that they're going to be like, oh yeah, oh, we'll definitely like do your bidding and like, completely change our risk profiles and like do this whole new thing. Like no, the no nonsense answer is like charter a municipal bank, manage your own assets, create some capacity, do the lending that you want to do that you think is, is good for your city. We need to move in that direction so that our, our 
our cities and states have a little bit more of a leg up on on like how to hold assets, finance projects, and like all these different things. Yeah, and I mean, I think you look at like it's. I mean, I, I, were, I I think a lot of public bank discourse and everything maybe be a bit too much. Like, okay, we you know, it's more the fact you tried. Uh, it's like it's like it seems like a lot of people have maybe more a potluck bespoke idea of like how it's supposed to be like kind of crunchy and quirky and cool. But really, it's just the you know kind of just sensibly. If you have a large city, the assets the city controls are enormous. You know, yeah. this is by any sensible measure should be an asset holding that makes it de facto really what the bank should be. And I right. think there's always issues of like how is it going to manage it? Are you going to allow a city to really like uh, like leverage its own you know assets to the moon? But I mean, I think just in general, we shouldn't well, have yeah. them holding a hand out and begging. Right. Yeah. I mean, you you know, you don't <laughs> you don't have to leverage it to the moon, but like you can leverage it yourself better than, uh, you know, whatever interest rates like the, you know, leeches that the big national banks are going to be like asking for. Like, yeah, you- we're, we're, we're socializing the risk of the big national banks anyway. We might as well socialize risks of the cities because I think it's a more socially useful thing to be doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I, th- I, I think I think that's the other like really important thing, right, is, is the the asset holding. And that, and that actually gets to like kind of the the what I think is the very concrete, immediately actionable thing that cities and states ought to do to initiate this kind of turn toward socialized real estate of some form, which is create municipally or state sponsored enterprises that can own property yeah. and have some ability to finance acquisition and development create the entity that's yeah. that's the that's the first step and so i think you know i know there are a couple of states and a couple of other places across the country that are like kind of taking baby steps towards this like i know there's the assembly bill in california that alex lee has that it's it's incubating at the moment yes. uh, i think i think people keep an eye on it i think it's only gonna get better and better but uh yeah. It's a two-year bill. We'll we'll wait on it, but yeah, this is this is a major, major step of you know kind of creating you know and facilitating uh, you know essentially new agencies cross subsidization of you know a, a housing corporation, and in the end, yeah, if you get financing up front, going into the landlording business, market rate public housing, as it were, it's it's a good thing for a state agency to be doing. Totally. Yeah. This is the, <laughs> this is the, the argument that, you know, I always use the Alaska permanent fund as an example, but like, yeah, the, the people of Alaska own a 200 unit luxury building in Chicago. Yeah. That's funny. And that, that's wild. And that thing just kicks off like, like money every month. <laughs> that thing kicks off money. And like that money comes right back into the Alaska permanent fund. And like, you know, I mean, in the grand scheme of the whole fund, like it's, you know, it's not like it's like, this huge amount of like the whole fund, but right. They just like, they own luxury properties and they just kick off money and, and then they take that money and they give everybody in the state a giant check every year. You know, they're literally, they found a way to tax the rich, collect their rent. Yeah. And I feel like this is kind of the big gambit between like the Chicago school neoliberal like paradigm is I think they made a lot of, you know, carping over kind of the incentive structures of public agencies and the, principal agent problems of public administration and like and you know not entirely wrong i mean there are challenges to public administration and i think there you're you're lying to yourself if you think there aren't but then they put this on its head and said and therefore what we need is complete privatization no public ownership and honestly the public owning stuff is easy doing stuff is a challenge but like no it's very easy to have a passive real estate investment trust right yeah (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's not to impugn industrial policy. I think there are always, there's always going to be like, I think achieving, I mean, certainly I think it's interesting when you have like publicly owned, but ostensibly privately operated agency, such as transit or housing or so on. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. It can do a lot of stuff, but you know, in the end you always, you have to keep on a leash, you know, they are a monopoly and you do need to like keep them under wraps. Yeah. It's kind of like, public option, which, you know, I, I, you know, gets derided, you know, obviously in terms of Medicare for all, where like, 
public option is obviously inferior. <laughs> um, but like in terms of the the you know real estate market, there are all these private operators out there and there are people who want to pay market rates for housing and there are people who want to pay luxury rates for housing. There are people who want to pay whatever. Somebody is going to collect their rent, yeah. right? Like it can either be MetLife Life Insurance Fund or it can be the city of New York. Who's going to do cooler stuff with that money at the end of the day? Probably the city of New York, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, what is MetLife going to do with it? Like, refuse to pay out life insurance claims and just keep the money for themselves? Like, probably, yeah. Well, and in the end, like, it kind of flows to a bunch of, you know, investors of these large, you know, firms. And, like, what is this? This is really kind of just uh, extremely regressive, you know, impact on just what the ownership profile of society looks like. And right. like, that's just yeah. that's just not good for anybody. It's it's entrenching right. the stuff that we want to get away from. Right. And I think I think like just in general, it kind of just goes to you know I, this. I mean, re- reminds me of kind of you talk about like the general you know capacity of administrating all these different you know markets, institutions for you know socially productive ends. And it's like the question: How do we manage you know landlording right now? You know, insofar as we kind of do have ostensibly a monopoly on planning you know that's that's yeah, taken over everywhere yes. uh, but when it goes down to you know actual landlording we have a bunch of kind of soft levers a bunch of like incentives and so on but in the end it's like okay we really don't want landlords to evict everybody you know because it's going to harm a lot of people and it's also you can make the argument as you do it's counterproductive in their own long-term interests but they're kind of stupid, and that's how the economy works. A lot of times things blow up because people blow themselves up. Like, they are part of the system we administrate. We just do a bad job administrating it, you know? This is, it's, they're, they're, they're in the system, and we're just choosing to allow this black box to, you know, to overheat, as it were, or do whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and I guess I, the question is, like, are we going to do, you know, I, I mean, I think it's an all, all the above approach. What do we need? Do we need better regulations of, of tenant landlord relations? Yes. Do we need better structural changes as far as, you know, housing planning within cities so that, you know, the, the markets aren't like completely screwed up as far as unaffordability? Yes, we need that too. Do you need public ownership in order to actually align where the money flows to in the long term? Absolutely. And I, I don't know if there's any better way to say than that, but like, all these things yeah. are big ideas. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, we, we need everything. And I, and I think that uh, pretty much all of them require uh, either a competent uh, involved state and, or a courageous state, you know? And, and so like, like we need a big welfare state, we need a big fat welfare state, and we need to give people the resources that they need to meet their basic social needs we need social ownership. We need, you know, eviction protections. We need, you know, we need things like good cause, right. Where like we basically have two classes of households um, where, you know, if you're a homeowner, we, we have this like very funny thing with homeownership that, you know, this is the way I like to describe it. Right. Where like, if you buy a house, you are renting from the bank. Stop kidding yourself. Like for, for 30 you, years at least. Right. If you try, you know, try not paying your mortgage for a couple of months and see who really owns that house. The bank owns that house. But what we have is a situation where the way we've structured these types of things legally is there's no situation where, um, you know, if you're paying your mortgage every month, the bank can't just come in and say like, actually, this is mine again, um, get out of here. But what we have for people who rent their homes is, yeah, your landlord can just come in one day, even if you pay your rent and you're perfect tenant and blah, 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 like, and just be like, no, this is mine again. See you later. Get out of here. 30 days. Bye. Yeah. Like that is, we, we have like this completely otherworldly thing for, for people who rent their homes. And that's what good causes is like, you know, right to renew your lease. Yeah. Um, and so we need that thing to, you know, ensure these kind of fair levels of stability for people. And then obviously we also uh, need to abolish the single family zoning cartel the, the, you know, little micro capitalist cartel of like the wealthiest homeowners uh, in any given city. 
Yeah. And I, all this stuff, it's all, I mean, I think, I mean, it sounds very kind of like, you know, kumbaya, but like it is very, it's all a holistic picture, which is income, basically how neighborhoods are set up, how people earn livings, how they live. Like it's all one big blob of how they all interact. And I think we want to kind of like, you know, imagine that, you know, these are all different problems. But, in, you know, talk about kind of really who is controlling the shape of our body politic to what ends. And if you talk about kind of like evictions, like who rents in general, it is the underclass, you know, largely, broadly. But then like who gets evicted and who is affected? And, you you know, talk about like when people have an eviction on the record, like they are even more ground down by our system. Right. And what is what, what is our outcome there? Usually it's just like, hey, we don't really care. Uh, you know, it's because you're invisible to us. Right. And, and then you go back to, okay, look at this swank little, like, single-family home neighborhood. They benefit from them. The underclass being miserable actually effectively, I mean, at least in the short term, maybe you know, there's a lot of ways it actually hurts society. Right. But it, it actually helps, you know, basically the relative prestige and, uh, you know, just, you know, bottom line of, of, of this form of living. And, you know, they, they, they go hand in hand. And like, what do you really want? I, I'd say certainly someone who is, who would say the goal is egalitarianism is yeah. to not allow these people to be ground down. Uh, but <laughs> yes, but absolutely. takes a lot of stuff to get there. Um, and I don't know if that's kind of like, is that the neoliberal kind of mindset is like, you want a lot of off ramps to say, like, happily ever after everything is cleaned up. And I think having like you know independent businesses run without oversight and having like home ownership run without oversight it's like okay it's very clean you can just say happily ever after everything is solved the jeffersonian end of you know property you know democracy has been achieved but like what are you doing to prevent you know call it market failures just call it, you know everything else like yeah. it's it's a lie to imagine that administrative capacity you need ever disappears uh it's an ongoing system yeah yeah. In particular with, with like the home ownership thing in general, it's just that it creates such a perverse incentive structure for the people who, you know, I mean, it, it's literally, it creates the screw you, I got mine um, mentality that plays yeah. in, in local politics and policy. Like that's what it builds. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the incentives are screwy. I think anyone who cares about incentives should take a look at it. And I mean, I even get like, it depresses me a bit that I feel like Berlin should be like a solved issue insofar as like homeownership, like less than 15%. It's like, this is, this is a good basis. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, and you're seeing, but I'd say the agitation over like uh, essentially the rent stabilization, rent control policy in yeah. Berlin last year, which you wrote one thing about uh, people are like saying, Oh, you broke the system. You know, we had the housing production system going and now it's broken. Yeah. It, it, it con, uh, new, new permit, uh, new construction permits did not actually fall. Like new construction permits were actually like slightly above trend after this yeah. thing. Because I mean, the way they structured that law was like anything built, like there was like a, I think it was like a window, right? Like anything built in the past seven years or post 2010, maybe, or something like that was not covered by the policy. So, right, like that creates, that's actually an incentive for like, oh yeah, I will build some more stuff because I can get more of a return on building new stuff than buying old stuff. Yeah. I feel like it's always a big question of like, okay, what's a long term? I don't know. Is that a hard line like Costa Hawkins? I think what you really want is like one mechanism where it's like essentially like a moving window. And really, here's the thing. You ultimately need to regulate even new construction but yeah. you need to regulate in a way that's iterative and reactive to the point that you actually do continue building. Because if you put a regulation, everything breaks down. It's not like, oh, we didn't trust the market. It's like, no, you your regulations are bad and make them better. Like, yeah. That's a, seems I like mean, there is, when you like really zoom out and think about like a hundred years in the future or something when we're all dead, like, you know, there's maybe a, there's maybe a time in the future in our egalitarian horizon somewhere where a land value tax makes rent control unnecessary right where like a land value tax can achieve you know all of those impacts by like reducing costs um i, I don't but, i mean but, i don't even believe that i think like you're going to need some regulation on landlord tenant relations the person owns the oh, roof over your head you know yeah but it's it, it's certainly this a very strong foundation to build on at the very very least totally yeah 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 i guess i i get a little uh <laughs> space thinking about like 200 years from now like how does it work does like 
is is all land like under social ownership like do we you know land ownership is an iterative political question which continues to go on and like i just hope in the same way that like as democracy becomes like a true democracy in the same way the you know democratic aims of land ownership continue to be achieved but i don't think there's like an on off switch you know it's it's a challenge yeah yeah i think i mean to i mean the overall like kind of top line maybe you know point is I mean, this kind of goes back to just like agitating over like, what do you need? It's like, are we building stuff? I, I just like the phrase like on the public dime versus, you know, for the public dime. Yeah. And I, I think that's honestly, I mean, I, I get like when you heard like back in like the Bay or like San Francisco, people talking about building on a bus yard and building houses. Oh, this must be, you know, kind of deeply affordable. This is a, like this is incredibly scarce and valuable asset. You know, yeah. and we need to really leverage it. It's like one, you're not really leveraging it without cross subsidization, and second is, that's just such a like a loser attitude to have. It's like, oh, we only have so many public assets. You know, it's like that's right. wrong. <laughs> that's absolutely oh, yeah, we, you, yeah, right. You have a lot of public assets, and you could do you, right. Like in I, I don't know all the details of that project, but like, right, it's like next to, it's like near a transit station or whatever. And if you're saying like, oh, we only have like so many properties that are like near transit it's like well yeah you also don't have enough like transit there like you could build more transit and then you could have more land that's closer to transit and build more housing on that yeah um, <laughs> my, my classic scheme like a, a a good municipal government is effectively like almost uh, like exactly the same as looking at a big transit agency you know that's what a city is in a lot of ways and i mean i you know to the transit thing like i also make that point you know like one of the other great benefits of having a public agency or you know municipal enterprise or whatever um doing this housing production work is that you have these positive incentives and you have the assistance of like all of these agencies being connected that allow you to plan these things together right like you can you can ensure that you are connecting your housing to parks and to transit in all of these ways when your when your agencies are all talking to one another. Yeah, right? and, I, and I guess this is what I mean in, in you know when I kind of compare planning of this style to what I describe as as laissez faire planning, where it's basically like, look, there's land out there, it has some zoning, it has some building code that you must adhere to, but like if you buy it and you meet the rules, you can do whatever you want, right? Like compared to that actively planning we need transit and housing here and we're going to do a big thing uh it's it's a very different ball game and and you can um do really comprehensive work to make cities livable for the many yeah and i think that goes into the fact like it really isn't just about housing it's not about transit but also like you know kind of incomes how are people you know making money living working you know education and so on it's a it's a comprehensive program um and you know, I, I think, I mean, you talk about like kind of, you know, my old, you know, just hundreds of years in the future. I think the idea that the main income for people is what they get as kind of factor production in you know labor markets, I think is also going to become increasingly antiquated all the time. And I think the idea that instead people living in cities are, you know, maybe predominantly passive enjoyers of the fact that they are part owners of this large enterprise is probably going to be a much bigger thing than like, oh, this is my job, as it were. But you know, that's, that's kind, yeah. of, kind of broad. That's 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 getting out there into our egalitarian future. Um, <laughs> I, think, I, yeah. I mean, I'm all about it, but yeah, yeah, we got a ways to go. Uh, just by wrapping up, uh, just like you know, maybe kind of like short-term stuff. I mean, you're you you have some you know uh, ongoing chatter on the Substack about you know kind of ongoing issues, both inflation hawking and the, you know, eviction moratoria, you know, uh, muck-ups and everything. And any kind of quick hot takes on, on just where, uh, where you think this is all heading? Yeah, the, evi- the yeah, evictions are, it's going to be horrible. Yeah. Um, you know, there have been a lot of people who have said like, oh, the total number of evictions is, you know, that's going to happen is like overblown or something. It's not going to be so many people. I mean, even Noah Smith said this and I was like, you literally don't know literally read any academic article about how this stuff works i think one thing is like the eviction the evictions have been happening like they've been already squeezing yes. the tube but it, it is going to get you know even based upon that i think they've been like it's not going to pop at once because they've been squeezing the tube but it's going to still be extremely ugly right well and and, and i mean there is one natural bottleneck that will 
that will cap at some level, like the daily number of evictions that can occur, which is how many cases can be processed in a county courtroom in a day. Um, and obviously there will be some speeding up of that, presumably in some places where landlords are really chomping at the bit. But yeah. like that is a natural bottleneck that exists, right? Like you can't process 10,000 cases in one courtroom in one day. It's just, you just can't. But, you know, I think the thing that a lot of people are kind of missing is how concentrated a lot of these evictions are going to be in the communities that were where the, where the unemployment rate is highest, right? Like yeah. who was not able to pay rent? Who's behind on rent? It's like poor and like often black service worker neighborhoods. And those are the people that are going to be hit hardest. And those neighborhoods are going to be really like the people are going to be traumatized, right? Because evictions are traumatizing and the neighborhoods are going to be hurt too. And I mean, there's so much academic research on like, what is the effect on neighborhoods of kind of serial evictions? Um, and it's, and the answer is just disinvestment, vacancy, market failure, people moving out, just lost. Yeah. And, and part of that comes down to like, right, this thing that, that uh, often evictions are a scarlet letter that prevent um, tenants from being able to get into new property. You know, landlords don't want to rent to someone who's ever been to housing court for any reason, even if they got off, like landlords will be like, oh, no, yeah. you, you even went to housing court, like some, you must've done something. So I'm extremely worried about that. And then the other reason that I'm extremely worried is because shelters are almost all full right now. Like the, you know, the, not only are beds full, but like the number of days that like people, the average length of stay of someone in a shelter has been going up since the pandemic started. So people are staying in shelters longer. Like our shelter systems in most cities are not prepared for this like influx. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if like, you know, it's, it's always bad to just make predictions, but like, it, it does seem we might be on the cusp of something like really big and dark in the same way of like just the 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 forces unleashed by urban renewal projects and mass displacement and yeah. kind of the forces kicked off, you know, by like, you know, great migration you know projects, you know, based upon, you know, Jim Crow South and everything like it really does feel like we are we kind of are taking this underclass, just beating it with a cane. And like at some point like something happens and what's that going to look like? I don't, I mean, I don't yeah. pretend like I, I, I can guess, but like bad stuff happens when you treat people like this. Yeah, totally. I think that another point about it is that like, you know, a lot of these eviction, not only will it be concentrated in specific neighborhoods within cities, but, but also in, in specific um, states where like where I'm most worried about is like a lot of these states in the South that have these kind of like the actual removal by the sheriff's office can happen on the same day as the court proceedings. Like in Mississippi, this is the case. People are just going to be like removed from their homes on the day of like hearings and have like no time to prepare. Like that's, that yeah. is like, that is really beating people. And like Mississippi, you know, the hurricane just, I mean, most of it went through Louisiana, but like it will, you know, went through Mississippi. That, I mean, I think it's like that, like just as far as the edge of the bureaucratic apparatus goes, I think one of the darkest things is in so many places, the most effective essentially institution that is at the edge of the bureaucratic apparatus are these, it's like the eviction machine. Like it's really scary. Like all the things we do badly, like, like it, you know, capitalism works, you know, kind of like achieving ends, but what ends do you want to achieve? And like, that's one thing we've, a lot of places have done a bang up job of just like, you know, optimizing all hell. Yeah. But, uh, well, that's, that's a nice, that's a nice note to, to end on of just how bad everything is. But any, any other, any other closing thoughts? Uh, well, the inflation thing I got, I'm, I'm working on some stuff about the inflation thing. So, um, maybe keep an eye out for that, but Personally, I don't think that the uh, inflation hawk story is as big of a nightmare as um, some of the anti-loose money people say it is. So yeah, we will. We will see. I, I feel like we're in like a my personal take. I think we're in a kind of weird dichotomy in which you are like for the inflation hawks or for the you know kind of soft money people and like. I mean, I think there is there is a lot of space for saying that we are in need to be moving into this kind of extremely soft money like place but part of that is we kind of need to deal with real estate better you know yeah. just in general because i think it is wrong to say real estate is booming therefore we need to administer deflation and you know destroy uh you know tight labor markets and everything right. like, no no absolutely not but like right. 
what are we no, I mean, doing? That, yeah, that's one complaint that like uh, annoyingly like comes from the left in a way that I disagree with is that like, oh yeah, you may be like trying to achieve full employment in like a tight labor market, but like you're creating an asset bubble. Um, and that's like, you know, exacerbating wealth inequality. And it's like, okay, well, the like wealth inequality is very bad, but like the solution to that is not to like destroy the prospect of full employment. The solution to that is to like socialize assets. Hell like, yes. <laughs> like that's, the, I mean? that's like, the game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We should be creating a, a, a tight, hot labor market. And we should also be like buying real estate and like taking ownership of like corporations. And we should be, we should be socializing wealth. Yeah. If you want to address wealth inequality, get the public sector to buy shit. Can I say shit on the radio? I'll bleep it. But uh, yeah, I mean, people get angry if you say like, oh, MMT mindset leads to market socialism. I'd say it does. And it's awesome, you know, but you know, that's, you know, that's, I, I I don't know if that's the best pitch for it, but whatever. Well, a lot less stuff going on, and uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, I know you have other other projects, you know, in in the stove, and you know, I, I hopefully, hopefully, hear more, hear more, uh, more soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking. Cool, cool. Thanks for making the time. We have been talking to Paul Williams all about public housing, social REITs, administrative capacity, and much, much more. You can find this episode of the podcast and all previous episodes of the radio program at the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford.